0: Section 27 of The Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13, Malplaquet, Part 1. Late though the campaign had lasted, Marlborough was not able, even when it was at an end, to go back to England. Now that Lille, the great fortress which guarded the northern frontier of France, was in the hands of the Allies, and the road to Paris seemed to lie open to their conquering armies. It was to be expected that the French would make a great effort in the Netherlands during the next campaign to keep the Allies from entering France. Marlborough wished that on their side they should do all they could to be prepared to meet them, that a few more crushing blows might bring down the pride of Louis XIV so low that a really sure and lasting peace could be concluded. The emperor consented that Prince Eugène's army should remain in the Netherlands during the next campaign, and Marlborough exerted himself to persuade the English government to grant supplies which would enable him to reinforce his army. Toward the end of January, Eugène went off to Vienna to settle matters with his court. Marlborough, at the request of the emperor and the states-general, Remained in Holland to look after the troops till Eugene could return and take his place. he wished also to watch the course events were taking. Louis the Fourteenth was once more holding out tantalizing offers of a separate peace to the Dutch. This made Marlborough uneasy and anxious to be on the spot to see what was going on. He knew also that he was regarded with suspicion and distrust by many amongst the Dutch. After the victory of Audenarda, Charles of Austria had repeated his offer of the government of the Spanish Netherlands to Marlborough, and it is clear that Marlborough would gladly have accepted so important a position, to which also a large salary was attached, which must have had great attractions to so avaricious a man. But the Dutch were entirely opposed to the proposal and Marlborough knew that it would be impossible to accept it in their present temper. Still he had not definitely refused, and this kept alive the jealousy of the Dutch. At last, in the beginning of March, 1709, Marlborough was able to return to England for a few weeks. The state of things there did not tend to give him peace of mind. It was just then that the Whigs had at last triumphed over all the scruples and hesitations of the queen, and filled all the chief places in the government. Anne, who was discontented and out of spirits at the death of her husband, vented her displeasure upon Godolphin, and was cold and stiff, even with Marlborough. On the other hand, the Whigs did not feel sure of Marlborough and Godolphin. They treated them with suspicion, and were always making new demands upon the unhappy treasurer, so that in the beginning of January he had written to Marlborough, The life of a slave in the galleys is paradise in comparison with mine. The Duchess, too, was out of temper with her old friends the Whigs, who did not treat her with the consideration she thought she deserved, and still more out of temper at the growing favor shown by the Queen to her rival Mrs. Masham. Altogether, Marlborough's few weeks' holiday cannot have given him any pleasure. The triumph of the Whigs had not diminished the bitterness of party strife. Parliament was with them, but amongst the people a weariness of the war was beginning to be felt. The burdens of taxation pressed heavily upon them. The French privateers interfered with English commerce, and besides money losses— People murmured over the want of those luxuries with which commerce had formerly supplied them. They no longer cared so much about Marlborough's victories, and the old murmurs were raised that the great general was prolonging the war for his own interests. In France, the winter had brought terrible suffering with it. The people were utterly impoverished by the long and ruinous wars of their magnificent king. There was a scarcity of everything, above all of bread. Even the fine ladies at Paris were forced to eat black bread. An exceptionally severe winter increased the sufferings of the people. All the rivers were frozen over, and the half starved, half clad peasants were in no condition to bear the bitter cold. Whilst the people suffered, officials grew rich on their misery. Corn was bought up by monopolists and only sold again at exorbitant prices official mismanagement and jobbery increased tenfold the burdens of the war brigands infested the roads and misery would have driven the people to revolt had they not been restrained by military force famished they crowded round the gilded gates of versailles clamoring for bread under these circumstances louis the 14th at last determined as he puts it himself to forget his glory and make proposals for peace. Monsieur Rouillet was sent to Holland to confer with Hensius. As soon as this was known, both Marlborough and Eugène hastened to the Hague so that the Dutch might not be led into any separate agreement with France. It was found that the concessions proposed by Rouillet on the part of the French king were not nearly sufficient to satisfy the Allies. Rouillet sent to Paris for more instructions, and meanwhile Marlborough and Hensius discussed together the terms on which peace could be accepted. As soon as they heard any talk of peace, the other allies hurried to send in their demands, and of course each only thought of what they wanted for themselves. The Dutch cared for nothing but their barrier, and on this point their demands grew more and more exorbitant. The Whig government at home had furnished Marlborough with a list of the conditions upon which the English would be inclined to make peace. The terms were hard, for they included the cession of the entire kingdom of Spain to Austria within two months, and the Rasure of Dunkirk, the place from which the French privateers sailed to prey upon English commerce. Hensius believed it impossible that the French would accept such terms, but Marlborough declared that England would agree to nothing less And Eugene's demands were equally exorbitant. Both Eugene and Marlborough so entirely distrusted the French king that they believed that nothing but the most crushing terms would really humble him and save Europe from his encroachments. The Whigs, too, went even further than Marlborough himself. The war was a Whig war. Its success had produced the triumph of the Whigs. They were in no hurry to see it come to an end unless they could procure a peace so glorious as to strengthen and increase their power. Hence party considerations in England influenced these negotiations more than any wise consideration what would be for the real good of the English people. On the other hand, the court of Vienna, which had borne none of the costs of the war, wished to reap its full advantages. If they could not get all they wanted now, the war might as well go on, Since Holland and England bore all the expense of it, they had nothing to lose and possibly a good deal to gain by its continuance. Their grasping ambition knew no bounds, and though the whole war had sprung from the necessity of preserving the balance of power in Europe against the preponderance of the House of Bourbon, no fear was shown lest the scale should weigh down too heavily on the other side and the House of Austria gain that preponderance which had been snatched from France. Probably the other allies had little fear, knowing as they did the incapacity of the House of Austria. Under these circumstances, Ruyer despaired of bringing the negotiations to any conclusion. He returned to Versailles with the terms offered by the allies, and Marlborough went over to England to discuss the state of affairs once more with the government. The news brought by Ruyer filled Louis XIV and his ministers— with despair. A contemporary manuscript speaks of the scene in the French cabinet as so sad that it would be difficult to describe it. At last, Torcy, Lewis's Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, rose up and offered to go himself to The Hague to see whether it would not be possible to get peace on more easy terms, or at least to prolong the negotiations, and by the prospect of peace Keep the Allies from preparing vigorously for another campaign. Louis gratefully accepted his offer, and he set off at once with the passport of a common courier, without waiting for a safe conduct. Turcy reached The Hague on the evening of the sixth of may 1709. He passed through Rotterdam on his way, and his banker, accompanying him thence, led him straight to the house of Hensius, who was amazed on learning who his visitor was while Torcy was equally amazed at seeing the way in which the head of the government of the state's general lived. He writes in his report that his establishment consisted of one secretary, one coachman, one manservant, and one maid. Torcy was delighted to discover that Marlborough and Eugène had not yet come back. He hoped to work upon the self-interest of the Dutch, and by offering them all that they could want for themselves, Persuade them to break with the Allies. However, nothing was to be made out of Hensius. He was cold and unbending in his manner, earnestly desirous for the good of his country, but firmly determined to stand by the rest of the Allies. It was hardly to be expected that he should personally feel much cordiality for the French, for when at the time of the Peace of Nijmegen he had visited Paris to negotiate terms, and had warmly opposed Colbert in discussion, Colbert had gone so far as to threaten to imprison him in the Bastille. Torcy felt that it was quite useless to try and work upon the personal feelings of this stern and determined man. He hoped to be more fortunate with Marlborough, of whose morality the French had no high opinion, and whom Torcy, according to the instructions of his court, was to try and bribe by the promise of large sums of money to get more easy terms for France. End of Section 27